Okay. Uh, I've got I've got sound. Always a good thing to have sound. Let me uh, find a good volume. It's three in the morning, so I can't speak too loud. But uh, welcome to Free Association. And yeah, it looks like this is all right. I might turn turn again down a little bit more. There we go. That might work better if it's slightly less boomy. All right. Okay. Anyway, welcome to Free Association. My name's Dennis. It's the twenty seventh of July. 2023 it's exactly three o'clock in the morning and i thought i'd do a show because I'm, <laughs> i just woke up about an hour ago and uh, i thought i'd do a show using a little bit of redacted because there's a piece i want to play from redacted from a couple of days ago so this is clayton and natalie morris doing their thing on the 25th of july which is monday two days ago actually one yeah tuesday two days ago here they are this is about 15 minutes of space in stories today right you've got lebron Le lebron james son collapsing going into cardiac arrest as an 18 year old basketball player like ah, that's perfectly normal 18 yeah. year olds just we don't know the details of it he's out of the icu which is great that he's doing better thankfully uh a lot of questions there of course um we have the the personal chef of the obamas uh winding up dead on martha's vineyard Right. Um, also, singer Tori Kelly has been trending because hospitalized for blood clots in her lungs, healthy in her 20s, uh, young girl. Um, and also, the Biden's dog keeps biting Secret Service members. Yeah, if this was, yeah, six people now to the hospital because of this. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this, though. Here's a question. Would you let someone implant a microchip into your hand if you would receive $2,000 a month? A month in return for getting a chip put in your hand. You heard me right. We'll give you universal basic income, basically. 2,000 euros, $2,000 a month, if you allow us to put a microchip in your hand. That's exactly what's about to happen as part of the rollout of the central bank digital currencies. That's a carrot for them to rope you into this mess. We'll get to that part of the story in a minute. The chip implantation process. Not the corn chip, as Dan said in our chat, but a actual metallic tracking chip. Um, but a new report just published this week by the Bank for International Settlements explains how our new digital money system is about to work. We've been warning you that there was, this was coming for a long time uh, on this show. Also, we weren't the only ones predicting this. Uh, it was predicted in a little book, you might have heard of it, called uh, The Bible, uh, The Mark of the Beast. Uh, for one thing, this new system, this is how this new system would operate. According to them, the Bank for International Settlements, the new reserve currency, forget the dollar as you know it, basically. This will be the new reserve currency, which is what, how they want to label it and how they are labeling it. This would be used to settle all transactions. As everyone moves away from the U.S. dollar right now, this seems like perfect timing to be moving to this new system. So are they purposefully torpedoing the U.S. dollar in preparation for a global a global new uh, reserve currency. One might wonder, right? We don't believe in conspiracy theories around here, uh, but you have to wonder. It could include the confiscation of all property, physical property, by assigning it 
every uh, every item would see, receive a real world every real world item would receive its own unique digital token so what do you guys think about this right this idea that they could i'm not saying they're going to but you know your car your house all of these sort of physical items that need a token process you have to get them you have to get them digitally tokenized in order for you to claim ownership of these items no more selling cars without a digital token right no black market of selling cars they all have to be tokenized they all have to have a digital tracking id to know exactly who owns them through this what they call this transparent process so it's like a blockchain for the world right i mean it would be on the blockchain right everything would be the, everyone would be given a tokenized digital id and I'll, I'll explain more about exactly the tokenization process in a moment but basically the idea that if you don't comply with this then we're going to take your property and, and they won't come out and say this but that's exactly what some people are, are worried about is that they would take your items they would take your physical property and do it for you or confiscate it altogether if you're not willing to comply and think of it like a like contraband it would be considered contraband imagine trying to go through the airport or airport security with that laptop that you didn't have tokenized so there's no digital footprint of it oh, what is that what is that item that you're carrying there why do you have that there Oh, I'm um, sorry, I didn't have it registered with the government. I don't have a digital ID for that item? Don't worry, we'll take it off your hands. So your digital wallet, your car, your house, your laptop, your phone, all of it, assigned a digital token. Inside those tokens would be a set of rules for how each item can and cannot be used so that each person can be controlled and conditioned directly by the central bank. You've used your digital wallet to buy your allotment of beef or chicken this month? You're cut off. You're cut off. Your wallet is not limited. Uh, your, your wallet is now limited until next month. And by the way, you think this is like a conspiracy theory. The Federal Reserve, literally on their website, loves and talks about the benefits of a expiring currency, the expiration of currency. And, and hey, China is already doing it in part. So there's already limitations and expiration of currency. We already have this. And the Fed is openly talking about this on their website. Think this is a, a dream? Okay. Just wait until it happens. Let's, let's actually let them describe. So here is, after this Bank of International Settlements rolled this out last week, here is their tokenization process in their own words. Just watch sort of the, well, let me know if you think that this is creepy in any way. Watch. Tokenization is more than just a digital representation of money and assets. It involves digital representation on a programmable platform, which means that tokens can incorporate the rules and logic governing transfers, as well as the information about the asset itself. Now, currently, money and other claims reside in separate databases that are connected through third-party messaging systems, meaning that transactions need to be reconciled separately before being settled with finality. Tokenization makes all this one seamless operation. Tokenization is well suited to resolve incentive and information problems. Think of an example where a buyer would like to pay when the goods are delivered, while the seller would like to deliver the goods when the buyer pays. Tokenization can solve this problem by executing both transactions at the same time. 
so, two real-world applications. So they, um, they, they talk about this. They talk about this tokenization as solving these problems, right? Involves, and it involves the representa- representing the ownership rights of real-world assets as digital tokens on a blockchain. In other words, you own a car, and that's confirmed because there's a digital token saying you do. And it's confirmed on the blockchain. You wouldn't need to go do title searches and all of your antiquated things like that when selling your car. It's already on the blockchain and confirm that you own it. It's a digital certificate of authenticity. They'll sell it to us as a way to speed up the banking process as he was just doing, as Hoi Shin was just doing. Right now, there are 10 steps in order to wire money to someone. It's long, especially if you're not using your bank. Like if you're you know, doing a wire from like Bank of America to PNC Bank, there are multiple steps. Each bank needs to verify that you are, in fact, sending the money. They need to basically send a request. So now tokenization and CBDCs would wire money that can ha- can do this in one step, one verification process instead of 10 steps. So it sounds great. That's how they will sell it to us. It's easy. It's faster. But what if government controls the blockchain? And what if the main currency is a central bank digital currency run by the Fed? And you want to use Bitcoin? You want to use Dogecoin? You want to use cash? Sorry, sorry. That's outlawed now. You can't do that. Oh, you're using this illegal currency? Sorry, you're going to jail. Where are, you know, we already see the move towards trying to get rid of digital currency that's not run by the federal government. They don't like, they don't like uh, Bitcoin. They absolutely don't like a lot of these other um, cryptocurrencies. Sorry, that's outlawed. You need to use America's digital currency or the EU's digital currency. That is controlled by central power. You don't need to imagine it because it's already happening. But more importantly, it's all about the control. Buried towards the end of this report is this nugget. This is why no one's covering this story because it's nuanced and it takes time to explain this all. So you're just going to wind up one day with this thing in your wallet a digital wallet, and no one's going to explain this to you. In this report, buried deep in this, I mean, like 40 pages deep, I stumbled across this. The governance section of a unified ledger could follow existing arrangements whereby central banks and regulated private partners, participants take part in governance under established rules. For example, when money and payments are involved in a ledger, the central bank will necessarily play a role as the provider of the ultimate settlement asset. Its specific involvement in governance arrangements could take various forms, much as it does in the case of traditional payment systems, where public ownership, regulation, and oversight, as well as private mutual ownership, are viable options. So, in other words, the Fed will play a necessary role as the provider and the ultimate settlement decider in these transactions. So, the central bank, of course, will control these transactions, and it means that it represents trillions of dollars in potential transactions of these governments. They stand to make a lot of money. And according to the report released just recently by the Global Financial Markets Association, this is the Boston Consulting Group and others, estimate as part of this report, look here on your screen, the value of tokenized illiquid assets will increase from roughly 0.3 trillion in 2022 to $16 trillion in transactions by 2030. That in seven more years, we will jump up by almost $15.5 trillion in additional settlements. Richard Werner is an economist who is a World Economic Forum insider. Think of him as a whistleblower against these globalists. 
He was chosen by Klaus Schwab at the time as a global leader. Here he explains how the CBDC or central bank digital currency will start off on our phones as an app, but then move to something far more nefarious, an implant in your hand. Yes, a chip in your hand. Listen. And what, what people don't mention is what do these CBDCs actually look You know, um, at the moment, there's a bit of But what was ready ready around 2015 is the ultimate to put under your skin, which is, in my view, a violation of human dignity. And they realize there is a hurdle. So to get people to get people to accept this, there will be you know why, why suddenly all the billionaires saying let's have universal basic income. The story is going to be. Oh, now we've created, we've created this vast unemployment and, and uh, disruption and crises. Well, we need universal basic income. You will get uh, 2,000 euros into your account every month. But of course, to run this efficiently, we need to use the latest technology. So, you know, you, you need the CBDC uh, chip implant. Okay. So you get this universal basic income. Right. That's the but carrot. You, you can't actually then make any more than that. That will be like you have to have what everybody has. Then. Well, I mean, I don't know if you get, you make more money than that, or you probably have to qualify at a certain threshold. But you know, would you be willing to go along with this? Is the question, and it's going to work. I guess There's that's my so extrapolation. Is like the scary part is this becomes the Hunger Games. You just get your portion, right? And then you have no rights well, I, to anything any above that. And I think when like we talked about it before. Is like it's going to target the poorest people because they're the ones going to be wanting to get on board with this because it's going to make life easier for them. It's like you get this stipend plus your income, and this is going to make it easier for you. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, that's the thing. I think this is going to work, and this is how they will get people. We will put you on a universal basic income, and you will be given a certain set of parameters how you can use this income. And you're by the way, you're going to have to get a chip in your hand for tracking. That's how you will access it, right? And additionally, you will then, uh, you will be apt at certain purchases. Your carbon footprint will be tracked. What are you buying? Where are you going? And the idea, of course, that, oh, this is only for purchases. We won't be able to track your physical location, your whereabouts. Really? Communication, how is it being tracked? Bluetooth, near-field communication. I just walk up and tap it against any kind of like a, uh, you know, a soda machine. We've already seen them rolling it out at different uh, grocery stores. We see people in Sweden are, are jumping on board with this, wanting to use this on a regular basis. So there's people already electing to use this, wanting to use this. Um, and they'll do this with the promise of basic income. $2,000 a month. Would you do it? Let us know in the chat if you would do that. This is not some fever dream, by the way. Where was this? Where did this come from? This was explained in great detail by Klaus Schwab himself in 2016. Listen. Aujourd'hui, au bout de ça, on parle de plus qu'on pourra s'implanter. Ce sera quand ça Certainement dans les dix années à venir. Et d'abord, on va les implanter dans l'équipement, uh -huh. c'est-à-dire wearables, comme on le dit. Et après, on pourrait s'imaginer qu'on les implante dans nos cerveaux ou dans nos topos. Et à la fin, peut-être il y a une communication directe entre notre cerveau 
et euh, la, le monde digital. Ce que nous voyons, c'est une sorte de fusion du monde physique, digital et biologique. Mm. Digital et biologique. They want to inject this and be able to control all monetary policy. Um, I know this is a All right, so that's Clayton Morris, Natalie Morris, talking about digital currency. So I thought that was a, a good clip to play. They tend to ramble in between their news stories, but uh, that's a basically quite a good show. They stretch it out a little bit. It could be an hour without all the, uh, the chit-chat that goes on. They, they can do it the way they want to do it. I'm not uh, not criticizing. I'll just I would do it as an hour if I was doing that, and uh, cut out all the little bits of commentary and chit chat between the presenters a little bit more. But that's just me. It's a different style. Anyway, hello, Emmanuel. How are you doing? I'm going to find another another clip to play now, I think. Right, let's try John Campbell. Let me... Uh... No, I, I played the John Campbell clip yesterday and it didn't really work. So let me play it again. So I was trying to live stream in two places at once and it just didn't work but i'm recording this time so it may work this time with a bit of luck once youtube loads up it'll uh, it'll happen unless something else comes up which is always possible I'll skip through adverts and the first few minutes of the upload. So this clip is he posted twelve hours last night or yesterday afternoon. That's about eighteen minutes. I can get it down to less than fifteen minutes, but It is worth worth playing. Want to watch? It's Wednesday, the twenty sixth of July. Now, if regular via this paper, then they are thinking about it. There were 777 uh, working people followed up with 707 controls. 5.1% of those who had the booster vaccine had increased. So 5.1% increased cardiac 
mark percent of the 777 that is one in 35 one in 35 had vaccine associated myocardial injury quite astounding and uh incredible that's what this is about if you want to watch stick around i think i can get through it all in about sort of the main points in about 10 minutes if you want to stay um, just before we do that more. we'll just look at this ad from you say younger than me um some of you might consider that is quite outrageous and utterly unethical anyway let's get down to the business of today because this is really quite an impressive study by cardiologists and scientists in uh, switzerland Myocardial injury after COVID-19 vaccine of cardiology and cardiovascular research institute of Basel in Switzerland, of course. Uh, now this is published in the European journal of heart failure. It's an open access journal of the heart failure association of the European society of cardiologists. So top flight stuff. This paper is accepted. It is peer reviewed. It's not yet published. We've got a preprint and uh, not a preprint, a, a pre-release copy because it's not a preprint because it is peer reviewed and a fully accepted paper in an international peer reviewed reputable journal. Um, it's a Perspective, active surveillance, active surveillance, they were actually looking for things. In the past, what we've had is a uh, perspective, passive surveillance. So it's been passed forward to complain about it. And uh, it's been retrospective looking back. This is, this is a much better quality study. Worrying results, really. Uh, and this study was industry independent. It had nothing to do with the people that are making the money. Nothing to do with the people that are making the money. This study was not carried out by the people that are making the money. Independent. In the uh, Instigated by the uh, investigators themselves. So the aim, uh, they want to look at the incidence of potential mechanism of oligosymptomatic. So oligo means few, oligosymptomatic. So oligosymptomatic myocardial injury um, is myocardial injury, which has sometimes no symptoms uh, or sometimes minimal symptoms. It's oligosymptomatic, but that doesn't mean to say there can't be quite severe, severe uh, consequences. In fact, just before we go on, I think I'll just tell you something about the potential severe consequences. Now, this is from um, the textbook of medicine that's used, been used for generations now. Um, I just want to read something from this. Um, in most patients, this is talking about myocarditis. In most patients, the disease is self-limiting and the immediate prognosis is excellent. However, Death may occur due to ventricular arrhythmia or rapid progressive heart failure. Myocarditis has been reported as a cause of sudden and unexpected death in young athletes. And we could go on and read about longer term complications, not my words, directly from David's principles and practice of uh, medicine. Anyway, let's get back to the study we're looking at, uh, we're looking at today, this study from Switzerland, uh, following COVID mRNA vaccine boosters. So this is following boosters. Now, they wanted to check on what was causing this and how often it was occurring. And it's also very important, a safety net for people that have been boosted. So what they did, if people had uh, raised troponins at three days after the booster, they said, look, you've got raised troponins after three days. Therefore, let's get a repeat blood test. Therefore, let's get a 12 lead ECG or other cardiological investigations as the cardiologists deem fit. Take rest. Do not exercise. Because if you've got, if you've got myocarditis and you just rest for a few days, good chance it'll just go away, get better. If you go running or training, there's a good chance... Not a good chance, but there's a chance um, you can go into a ventricular fibrillation, into a full cardiac arrest. So the fact that these people were warned is so important. Probably not happening where you are, certainly not happening where I am. <coughs> so there's safety netting. 
screening and prevention of complications research methods. So uh, December 2021 to February 2022, hospital employees, so these are healthcare workers mostly, but hospital employees scheduled to undergo booster vaccination. This is the Moderna. Um, they were assessed for vaccine associated myocardial injury, blood being taken three days after the, uh, the vaccine. Uh, defined as an acute uh, dynamic increase in, so what they look for a high sensitivity, cardiac troponin uh, concentration, that's what they're looking for. So we, we probably know this, but if we, if we have cells here in the heart, so th these will be cells in the heart, these uh, cells that constitute the, the myocardium. Now, in, in these cells, there are troponins. So troponins are chemicals in these cells that's to do with the contraction of the myocardium. Now, if the cell is damaged or insulted in any way, if there's, if there's damage to the cell, then what happens is there's actually a breach in the integrity of the cell wall and, it, and the troponins leak out. So if these troponins are found in higher concentrations in the blood, it indicates that myocardial cells have been damaged. Very, very simple cardiac marker testing. Absolutely standard to look for troponins in all aspects of coronary care. So they're looking for those above age and sex upper limits on day uh, three. Blood taken 48 to 96 hours after vaccination. And very importantly, there was no alternative course. So these patients were screened by proper doctors and scientists. If they had a reason why they might have increased troponins, like they just ran a marathon, <laughs> that they would be excluded from the study. Other causes of raised troponins were excluded. This is a very thorough, well-conducted study. And I've already seen quite a bit of misinformation about this study already, but it is well-conducted. They did exclude other causes of um, raised troponins. 77 participants, median age 37, more women than men in the healthcare environment. So working age adults. A minimal, minimal risk from severe COVID, almost, almost none. I mean, all these patients have been exposed many times <coughs> to the healthcare workers, almost, almost certainly. Um, now, 40 participants, 5.1% had high sensitivity, high sensitivity cardiac troponin concentrations on day three that were above the 99th percentile. Already that's high. So 5.1% is already high, showing uh, much higher levels of troponin than you would expect. Um, mRNA. 1273 vaccine associated myocardial injury was adjudicated in 22 participants, 2.8%. Dear me. If, if someone said to me, look, you could have had this vaccine, as I did. Oh, but by the way, there's a 2.8% chance of a, a vaccine associated myocardial Furious! Not being fully informed. It's just, it's just, uh, one in 35 recipients, rather, one in 35 who received the booster vaccine had vaccine associated myocardial injury. I'm just going to read that out again. One in 35 of people who received the booster had vaccine associated myocardial injury. This, this is a range of adverse reaction that is off the scale in healthcare, off the scale. And yet, and yet, in New Zealand and other places, it's still being actively and unethically, some might say, promoted. Um, this is just off the scale risks, off the scale, completely. The only way you would take this kind of risk in healthcare, the alternative was certain death. Otherwise, you just certainly wouldn't, you know, we just don't take this level of risk. It's just complete madness. We'll keep to the, let's keep to the data. Um, of the 777, two women had chest pain. So what we're seeing here is most people here um, did not present with chest pain, and yet they had this myocardial injury, which could result in a focus for ventricular fibrillation and an adverse consequence that is irreversible. Um, of the 22 cases with mRNA 1273 vaccine-associated myocardial injury, 20 cases occurred in women, 2 in men. Now, this is the complete reversal of what we got with the passive surveillance. 
So active surveillance, when we're actually looking for the issue, is showing more myocardial damage in women, as opposed to um, the passive surveillance, where it was more young men that were affected. Interesting. Uh, pity this wasn't looked for actively before. Um, so young women could be fully informed, give informed consent before they were vaccinated. I mean, as adults, we're allowed to give informed consent for a lot of things. And if we don't give informed consent, then that changes the meaning completely. Completely changes the meaning of something that occurs if informed consent was not given. And yet, this is the case here. Informed consent has not been given because this wasn't looked for and talked about. If troponin elevations were mild and only temporary, good. No patients had ECG changes, good. None developed major adverse cardiac events within 30 days, good. But of course, these ones, these ones, these people were warned that they had high troponins and knew not to go exercising. All the difference in the world. In the overall booster cohort, uh, so, th so this is the cohort that were boosted, remember 777 of them that qualified, many more were taken on, but some were excluded, so that's correct. Um, median was uh, five nanograms per litre of troponin, interquartile range was four to six, 50% were in the four to six range. Match controls, it was three, interquartile range three to five. So basically we've got five nanograms per litre in the uh, boosted group, and we've got three nanograms per litre in the control group. That is a big difference. And significantly, statistically, that is significant. P equals 0.001, so there's only a one chance in a thousand. Very highly significant result that that could have arisen by chance. So we accept that as a result. You've elevated on day three, there were warning, and they knew not to go exercising. And as a result of this, well, we can't say as a result of this, but thankfully we can say no major adverse cardiac events are in 30 days. So because, um, well, we don't know why, but certainly it's possible that these would have occurred if the patients hadn't been warned. Um, no major adverse events following 30-day follow-up. So there was no cardiac arrests. Excellent. Uh, no um, myocardial infarctions. No acute heart failure. No life-threatening arrhythmias. But these patients had been warned that their troponins were increased, indicating they had myocardial damage, so they knew not to exercise. They were looked after by a doctor. Cases had comparable um, systematic reactogenicity. So concentrations of cytokines and cytokine antagonists, things that work against the cytokines, were markedly uh, were markers uh, of quantifying symptomatic inflammation. So they looked for these things, which was good. Now, they also, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but they had lower concentrations of a couple of factors here. Uh, granulocyte. <laughs> Basically, these are things that stimulate the immune response. So that stimulates blood of protection against uh, bacteria, for example. This stimulates a lot of protection against viruses. These were lower in the, uh, the people infections, or was it that these uh, protections were already lower, making the people prone to vaccine damage? That's one of the things that's currently being investigated and needs further study. Anyway, conclusion, mRNA, Moderna vaccine, associated myocardial injury was more common than previously thought. So vaccine associated myocardial injury was more common than previously thought. One in 35 people who had the vaccine. Massive. Being mild and transient, more frequent in women versus men. No adverse events. The people were warned. The watchman gave word that the enemy was attacking the city. The possible protective role of uh, the antiviral one and the uh, anti primarily antibacterial one warrant further studies. So that was from the uh, Moderna booster. 
similar studies um, from Pfizer. That one was from uh, Israel from memory. That one was from um, Thailand from memory. That's the Pfizer ad. I do hope that this is not a satire. If this is if this is supposed to be a joke that someone's put up, it's in very poor taste. Uh, but if not, if it's what it appears to be, then uh, it's also in very poor taste. Attracting young people to take an mRNA vaccine. One in 35 participants had um, vaccine-induced myocardial injury, much more common than previously thought. Now, if this, anyone who's vaccinated, they should be given this information. If not, they haven't been given, they're not, they're not giving informed consent. Therefore, it's illegal. If you don't give informed consent for other types of activity, that's got legal implications. You have to give informed consent. MRNA1273 vaccine associated myocardial injury was adjudicated in 22 participants, 2.8%. One in 35 recipients, 2.8% had vaccine associated myocardial injury. Not much more to be said on that. All right, that's true. We look forward to an immediate and urgent response from regulators around the world. If we don't get it, then they just hold themselves up to public mockery, ridicule. What are they there for? What are they there for? All right, so that's John Campbell. I'm going to take a look at Alexander Mercurius now. He normally does over an hour. It's half past three in the morning and there's still people that are joking outside. This place is weird, but it is right in the centre of the city. So, all right, this is Alexander Mercurius from last night. I think this is about eight hours ago. Yeah, eight hours ago. Again, I'll skip the advert. As we enter midsummer, it looks to me that we are starting to political scandals. Scandal in Britain, where it turns out that NatWest Bank, one of Britain's largest banks, um, its private banking branch arm, Coots, as is well known, cancelled uh, the British politician Nigel Farage's uh, bank account on the grounds that, that, as they claimed, he had fallen behind behind the financial threshold, entitled, entitling him to hold a bank account at Coots. Except, of course, it turned out, as a raft of documents showed, that in fact the reason to cancel his banking arrangements with Coots was partly, or at least principally, as, as it seems, due to his stated political opinions, his political positions, in part his support for Brexit. And that's already bad enough, but it turned out that the story that Nigel Farage had been denied 
banking services by Coots, that his banking services with Coots have been cancelled. It turned out that, that, that the story that this is all down exclusively to the fact that he'd fallen below the financial threshold criteria to be a member, a customer at Coots, that that was spread, that story was spread by no less a person than the director of NatWest Bank, I think I'm right in saying Britain's biggest bank, in a meeting she had with a journalist from the, from the BBC. Anyway, she's now been forced to resign, and this particular scandal, that it's fair to say the media had not been initially terribly interested in, continues to gain traction, as it's become clear that, at least in this particular case, the chairman, the chair of the bank, of a bank, was prepared to say negative things to a journalist about someone who had been, until very recently, one of the bank's customers. Anyway, I suspect this scandal still has some way to go, and we'll be hearing a great deal more about it over the next couple of days. Anyway, that's in Britain. There's potentially, or so it seems to me, a much bigger scandal now starting to cohere in the United States. I take my cue here from Jonathan Turley, um, a professor of constitutional law at George Washington University, who writes Recipe Soloquitur, one of the best blogs that I'm aware of, that I'm familiar with, about legal matters in the United States. He's been hammering away for a long time now about the need for special counsel to look into um, the Biden family's various um, business affairs, all arising from um, revelations in a certain laptop, but which have now spread with all kinds of witness testimony going coming forward. It seems there's been a great deal more testimony and some more evidence about this starting uh, being provided to Congress in congressional hearings. I suspect that the demands for appointment of special counsel are going to increase. And there's now apparently serious talk in the House amongst House Republicans, who are, of course, the majority, about starting impeachment proceedings against the president, the president of the United States. Again, I strongly suspect that that scandal is going to grow and, of course, it's going to dwarf all of the others if we do indeed find ourselves looking at impeachment proceedings, impeachment proceedings about what seem to me at least to be extremely serious issues, uh, unlike two recent impeachments which we have had. Anyway, it seems to me that this is probably going to overshadow all of the other scandals and might indeed have a determinative effect on the election outcome in the United States next year. So that's one big scandal underway. And I suspect that actually there's a third scandal looming on the horizon. Um, and this relates to the Chinese Foreign Minister Xin Gang and his sudden, the sudden announcement yesterday that he'd been dismissed and that the former Foreign Minister, the member of the Politburo, Wang Yi, who had been Foreign Minister before Xin Gang was appointed to that post, <coughs> that Wang Yi has now been reappointed Chinese Foreign Minister. Now, in my video yesterday, I said that I wasn't going to spend much time over that matter. It didn't seem to me that it was going to make any, uh, have any effect on foreign policy. Um, and I maintained that view. But since I made this that video, I've been thinking more about this particular event. 
And I'm starting to think that the most likely explanation for it is not that Tsingang did or acted in some way that contradicted the direction of Chinese foreign policy, or that he made some mistake in his conduct of diplomacy. I've seen no evidence of this and no suggestion of this up to now. Um, and in addition, um, it doesn't seem to me to have any sign of a power struggle about it. Power struggles in the Chinese political system, it seems to me, are very rare nowadays. And my own view is that President Xi Jinping is in full control of the Chinese government. Now, there is, however, one interesting fact about this particular affair, which is that Tsingang continued to perform the functions of foreign minister up to the 25th of June, and then he dis disappeared from sight for over a month with the Chinese authorities, providing no information at all about, about him or about the reasons for his somewhat mysterious disappearance. Until, of course, the announcement yesterday that he had been dismissed from his post and replaced by Wang Yi. Now, that's a period of just over a month. And based on the pattern of events in the past, previous political scandals when top Chinese officials have been summarily dismissed, it seems to me most likely that over the, what has been happening over the course of this month, past month, is that Tsingang has been suspended from duties pending some kind of investigation. And a period of about five weeks would be, it seems to me, the kind of period of time that would, one would expect for an investigation to take place. Now, that strongly suggests to me that he has been found to have committed some private transgression, which has decided, determined the Chinese government that he cannot remain foreign minister. One of the features of Chinese politics, especially at the highest level, since President Xi Jinping uh, assumed the reins, is zero tolerance towards private transgressions, be they over moral or sexual, and of course, especially not of a financial nature. And I suspect that something of that kind has come to light about Tsingang. He's been investigated. There seem to be grounds to conclude that he cannot remain foreign minister because of something he has done or which has been alleged about him. And he has been dismissed and replaced by Wang Yi, the veteran foreign minister who is obviously the right person to come back to the foreign ministry and to steady the ship following the dismissal, the abrupt dismissal of the newly appointed minister. And again, the pattern in China is that after a certain period of time, there is a full explanation, usually after there's been some kind of hearing. And I suspect that that's probably on the horizon. We will get I suspect a proper explanation from the Chinese authorities of what has happened to Tsingang and of why he has been dismissed in the way that he has been. So three scandals there. And then there's a fourth scandal. And this, interestingly enough, is in Ukraine, though I don't take this particular scandal seriously, which is the President Zelensky with a stalled offensive 
causing him increasing political problems, one suspects, both within Ukraine and in the rather fraught relations that he now has with his Western allies. He's come up with a scandal of his own. Somebody who has been involved in the mobilization process in Ukraine is now being accused of corruption. And there's apparently another official uh, being accused of corruption as well. And President Zelensky has made all kinds of stern comments about the inexorable punishment that those guilty of corruption can expect in Ukraine, which, given the pattern of politics in that country since it gained independence of the Soviet Union in 1991, is something, is a claim which, I'm sorry to say, I don't take at all seriously. Anyway, corruption scandals and also major political events we're now hearing that there's a great deal of work underway to prepare for the BRICS summit in South Africa, a BRICS summit which um, Putin himself will not be attending. He will be represented by his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, but he will be communicating, he will be participating via uh, uh, video conference facilities. And the word is that the BRICS summit is not going to be introducing new members at this particular meeting except possibly Saudi Arabia, we shall see, but that the priority will be to get the new BRICS payment system up and running, or at least working towards that end. And it's now becoming increasingly clear that what is being discussed is not so much a reserve currency operating like the dollar and in direct rivalry to it. Rather, it is an accounting system operated by a bank, the BRIC Bank, the new development bank, backed by gold, whereby funds will be moved around between countries, or at least assigned units, if you like, um, drawing rights at this uh, bank will be moved around between various countries in accordance with the trade patterns that take place between them. And in other words, a structure very similar to the kind of structure that John Maynard Keynes, the British economist, initially recommended at the time of the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, but one which was, by the way, only partially adopted. So that seems to be the emerging... Okay, I'm going to let uh, Alexander McCurst off for the rest of his show, which is another hour. So I don't want to play another hour. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up at this point. I've done 45 minutes, so I think that's long enough. Really, if I aim for 45, between 45 minutes and an hour usually. All right, thanks for coming in. I appreciate your company. I'll be back a bit later on in the day. It's, uh, it's half past three in the morning here, so I really need to get some sleep again at some point. Um, I'll see you a bit later on.